I would invite you to take your Bibles and if you would turn to James chapter 3. If you're using the church Bible, it's found on page 1012. And as you're turning there, I'd remind you that the last chance we had a chance to look at James together was about nine months ago. And no, I don't expect you to remember anything I said from last August. I am no longer going to call this a series on James. I've been told that many times by many people. It's actually a new term that I came up with. It's now known as an intermittent on James. So we'll see if this catches on. Maybe uh, we can have a, a new section of the website for intermittents. Let me read James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12 for our text this morning. We'll be focusing on the second half of this section. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. And if we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, a reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. These, this chapter is one of those chapters that I don't need to convince you is something that we need to hear. But how do we unpack this? How do we live it out? Well, last time at the conclusion of that sermon, and I, again, do not expect you to remember that, we had a challenge for that week, and this is what it was. Uh, and you can think back on your past week, or even on your way to church this morning, and see how you do with these. Don't gossip, but do speak well of others. Don't complain, but do give thanks. Don't make excuses, but do confess freely when we make mistakes. Don't defend yourself, but do accept what is given to you. Do not boast, but boast in your weakness. See, the point of that exercise was that none of us can keep that list by ourselves. We would be such a failure if we did that list and relied on our own strength, on our willpower, on our determination without the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what James is getting at. Because these things, this new life that is offered by Christ, reveals that our hearts that are either shaped by our own wisdom or the wisdom that we'll see today comes from above, reveals what is going on in my heart. My words are evident to everybody. Some of my sins I can keep hidden for a long time. People, though, with my words know what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling. 
In fact, Jesus himself says in John chapter 6, verse 45, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So from these verses, I'd like to consider three points. First is the reality of the unwise tongue. Secondly, we will see the results of the unwise tongue. And finally, the redemption of the unwise tongue. That there is hope. Our tongues, our speech, our conversations can be redeemed. So first of all, let me go through this again. The reality of the unwise tongue, which is, we're going to see, our tongues are evil. Number two, the results of the unwise tongue is that the tongue can often be destructive. But number three, the redemption of the unwise tongue shows us that there is hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't come from trying harder, but by having the Holy Spirit work in our hearts and lives. Okay, so the first one is that we need to acknowledge from the very beginning and be brutally honest, as the Bible is, about the state of my tongue. The scriptures have much to say about this, and it begins in the very beginning, the opening chapters of the Bible, where in Genesis 1, the triune God speaks, and everything that is comes into being. It says in Hebrews that he created all things by the power of his words. God speaks, and it happens. However, just two chapters later, we see what happens when we speak after choosing our own way, after choosing Adam and Eve, choosing their own path and their own course and not listening to God. After sin enters the world, we see that our speech and our conversations take a dark turn. The verbal blame game, the shifting, the complaining, the gossip, the excuses, the defending, the boasting, started and it has not stopped since Genesis chapter 3. In the words of Psalm 31 verse 20, it says this, describes this state as the strife of tongues. Proverbs 18:21 states this, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. And no doubt James is drawing from this and we'll see later on in the sermon about other scripture passages that show us the need to rely on Jesus Christ to permeate our conversations because when we speak from our own wisdom, we see that we get into trouble. Let's look at verses one to five. If you see there in verse five, it says that the tongue, even though it's very small among our members, among our body, just percentage wise, is a small member and yet it makes great boasts. In my natural self, in our human wisdom, we like to boast about ourselves. We like to tell others about our accomplishments. After all, if you go to a job interview, you probably have to list all the good things that you're good at. And they give the infamous, what's your strengths and what's your weaknesses? Well, we think about that one. We like to think that we're putting out our best foot forward. See, boasting is a verbalization of self-reliance that is often the opposite of God-reliance. Look at how James describes what this type of boasting, self-reliant, self-glorifying tongue reveals in us. Look at verse 6. The tongue is a world of unrighteousness. So think about that. These are strong words. Do you think of your tongue as a universe, as a world with subsystems and ecosystems within our various organs as a world of evil? I would say that we often don't. But it doesn't stop there. The, the tongue is also a restless evil. It's restless because even though we may satisfy it once, we keep going usually. We never stop boasting or pointing to others our self-importance. 
or our self-aggrandizement. The final phrase puts it bluntly that the gospel-less tongue is full of deadly poison. And just think about that. We, we know that, that snakes will have that poison in their, in their fangs, but what James is saying is that poison is actually coming out through our tongue. He says that we are then stained. And this is a hearkening back to earlier in the book when he calls us at the end of chapter 1 to be unstained, unpolluted by the world. And one of the ways we can show that is that our tongue, our speech, our conversation is different. Now, we might think this is overstating the situation. James, aren't you being a little, you know, over-the-top hyperbole? Well, just think about our past week and the other times in our life when we have given full vent through our anger or other emotions through our tongues. We have berated others in anger. We've insulted others motivated by pride. We have said hurtful things to make ourselves look good. And this is the point where we must begin. We need to acknowledge that we do not have it all together. We are not perfect. We often live as David describes the wicked in Psalm 140 verse 3. They have sharpened their tongues like a serpent. Adder's poison is on their lips. And this is not just a New Test uh, Old Testament thing, but Paul says something. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1. He gives a very honest assessment of humans before God as we live our own lives in Romans chapter 1. Consider how many things are listed here of those who express human wisdom and my desires that pass through our mouth. He says this, that these people are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. So the first question for us this morning is, do we agree with this? Will we admit that often we speak out of the overflow of our hearts and sometimes it's not good? Do we see the need of help outside of me through the work of Jesus Christ who came to redeem haters, who express hatred to God and to others, who came to redeem the slanderers, the gossipers, the boasters, those who are foolish in what they say, those who are faithless, ruthless, and heartless. He did this to make us members of his family and his children through the work of Jesus Christ. So this is the reality that we must begin with. The tongue is really, really, really bad. It is evil. It's full of poison. And as if we don't agree with this, he's going to show us a number of illustrations that show how this works out in our lives. So not only is the reality I have an evil, poisonous tongue, but I see, often see the results of this, that my tongue is often destructive. He's going to draw images or categories from everyday life that show this. The first one is that of a fire, an unquenchable fire. Look at verse 5. Consider what a great force is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire. Now, fire can be helpful. Uh, there are times, even in this book earlier and in 1 Peter, where it talks about a refining. And the picture there is that of the refiner's fire that takes um, base silver and gold and purifies it in the fire by the heat to get rid of the impurities. You can also think of a time, possibly, when you were camping 
and you are just coming out of a torrential downpour and you get the campfire to light. It's an amazing thing. It's a good thing. But we've all witnessed the devastation and destruction that fire can produce as well. In the news right now, there are wildfires burning out of control. They are untamable. At this point, they cannot put them out. They're out of control. We hear heartbreaking stories living in Philadelphia about house fires and various other times that we have felt and experienced and have seen the destructiveness of fire. And James says, that is what our tongues, when we live by our own strength, is like. And these things usually start with a very small spark. They've got to start somewhere. It's, it's not an instant conflagration unless you throw lighter fluid on or something else, which is a bad idea. But they start very small and they get bigger and bigger and bigger. The tongue is prone to destruction. And as if this is bad enough as it is, he goes on to say that it is set on fire by hell. The actual term that he uses is the Greek word Gehenna. It was a geographical location in the Old Testament. And what it's probably most famous for is that at that place, at Gehenna, was the altar to the false god Molech. This is well known in the Old Testament and in history because it was where people would come and practice the abhorrent practice of baby and child sacrifice, which was against all the commands of the God of the Bible. And so it became a picture. The fires of that altar became a picture of extreme evil. The term Gehenna is used by Jesus to say that at some point in the future, there is going to be Gehenna. There is going to be at the end of time or eschatological judgment when Jesus will separate the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats. It often parallels the language of the lake of fire described in the book of Revelation that we've been going through. Gehenna, or set on fire by hell, embodies the image that is entirely diametrically opposed to anything that is good and godly. And this is our tongues. The wickedness of its, the evil fire persists in its own self-glorifying wisdom by ourselves. So the first image is destructive, out-of-control fire, and we've all been there when we have given full vent to our tongue. The second image from nature and from life is that of an untamed wild animal. And he says this, if anyone thinks he is religious, in chapter 1 actually, verse 26, James previews our section here to say, if anyone thinks he is religious but does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. He also talks earlier in this chapter that we read earlier that we put bits in horses, even though they are so large and so strong, a very, very small bit in their mouth will turn this strong beast wherever we want them to go. I also found it interesting that in God's providence, our responsive reading today from Psalm 32 mentions this as well. When we, set, when we together in this service heard these words, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit or bridle, or it will not stay near you. See, the ancient philosophers were often bragging in their works about how they had been able to domesticate many animals, especially the horse. But James tells us, no one can truly, in our own strength, tame our tongues. The third image is that of trying to have two different things, two impossible realities at the same time. 
This is what I would call double-tongued. And I use this phrase deliberately for a few reasons. Earlier in this book, James talks about the double-minded man or the double-minded woman who vacillates between belief and doubt. Belief and faith and fear and mistrust. If we vacillate between the two, it cannot be. This term, double-minded man, is like somebody now who is practicing it in their speech. They're trying to live out their life in this reality. While not, our modern idiom might be something like this, someone who speaks outside of both sides of their mouth, the New Testament actually uses the word double-tongued. It's found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. When Paul describes the qualifications of a deacon, he says this, they must not be double-tongued, or to take the Greek very literally, to say the same thing twice, but with different meanings. It is impossible for a leader of God's church to be double-tongued and to be a blatant hypocrite in use of language. The third reason why double-tongued is a good term for this, to describe this, is because what James is saying in chapter 3, verse 9 and 10 is this. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. In other words, this is a defilement of natural order, as he will then say with these examples. Does a spring pour forth both at the same opening fresh and salt water? No, it's impossible. Or how about the next one in the next verse? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The obvious answer to these rhetorical questions is that it is impossible. We cannot continually and habitually say things one way and say things another. To bless and praise God and to then curse and defile and gossip against those who are around us. So if that's where we ended the sermon, it would be a very, very poor sermon. Here's the reality. Your tongue is evil. It's full of poison and it's full of destruction. Okay, go home. No, we have the redemption of our tongues. And this is what makes Christianity so unique. My tongue can be redeemed. How does James tell us? Well, here are some considerations. First of all, we need to remind ourselves that James is speaking to Christians. He's speaking to those who in chapter 1 has called them to receive the implanted word which is able to save their souls. It is the transforming word of God. As it has been put there, as we continually put God's word into our souls, he says, James says, live it out. This flows with one of the main themes of his letter, that we cannot just merely say something and do something else. We cannot say thing in one occasion and then say the exact opposite and do the exact opposite on other occasions. It's not as if good, godly, pure speech is somehow just added on, that I somehow try harder, that I need biblical communication and that will make me a better person. But it's something that flows out of my transformed, implanted word, heart. In other words, this is what we call the indicative of the nature of the gospel. You are redeemed, so live like it. And what better way to see that than in our conversation? Jesus said similar words when he said things like, you are salt, you are light. 
Nowhere does Jesus say, be like salt, or be salty, or be like light. But you are what you are already, so continue to walk in it. If you're not a Christian this morning, you may try your best to be a good person, try to say the right things, try not to lose your temper, but you will never attain to the righteous life that God requires because it takes his work in our hearts with that implanted word to change the course of our life. It only comes by faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. That's the first thing. We have, we have to cling to Jesus in all that we say and do. Second, to delve a little deeper into one of the illustrations that he gives here in verse 12, it's this agricultural illustration that no doubt was drawn from other sections of Scripture, including what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. So James's words here at the end of chapter 3 are just dripping with Scripture. This is how Jesus put it in Matthew chapter 7 in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Or, tell me if this sounds familiar to our passage. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and, here's that theme again, thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And in case we think this is a one-time thing, again, to read Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says this, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Uh, we had, uh, growing up, we had a number of apple trees in our yard, and it was really funny because my dad was usually very good at horticultural things, but no matter how he tried, he could never get these apples to produce good apples. Now, it's not like the tree in the off-season would say, mm, I need to try and get good fruit. It was a result of the roots, what it was drinking in. Perhaps it was the soil. Perhaps it was the water or lack of water that it received. The tree did what it was made to do. The tree did not work it up, but it produced what it was. This is what, how the book of Psalms began to take this agricultural image a step further and to understand this. That the righteous individual finds delight in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Get this. He or she is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Christian, this morning, be reminded that we are to drink of the word of God. Absorb the living water. Just as a fig tree produces figs, a grapevine produces good grapes, the righteous bear good fruit because of what they are taking in and what they are feeding upon. I think one of the problems we are facing today is that naturally, in different ways, we tend to, to, tend to feed on other things than the Word of God. We feed on tweets, TikToks, posts, or the always edifying comment section after any news story, which is not very edifying. What James is driving home is if we just focus on those things, which are not bad and evil, but if that's what we're drawing in with our roots, 
we can never, never produce good fruit. James was driving home that when we act apart from biblical wisdom, I am going my own way and seeking my own glory. Paul Tripp puts it this way in his book, Do You Believe? He says this, Self-glory itself is an argument for how much we need the word of God in our hearts and in our thoughts every single day of our lives. We need the word to point us once more to the glory greater than our own. The only glory that will ever satisfy our hearts. We need to be humbled again and again to be called back again and again from our self-focus. Christian, drink up the word of God. Third and finally, what James tells us, and we're going to get there uh, next time, we will, in our next installment of this intermittent of James, hopefully God willing, sometime in July. This is what James calls us to do. So if you look at verse 13 of chapter 3, this is where it really comes to culmination. He asks this question. Who is wise and understanding among you, among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have je bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom that comes from above is for first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We are living in a period of history where this from above wisdom and speech is so needed in the cacophony of voices shouting down each other around us. Just look at any news show. There are often people just yelling over top of each other. Perhaps even a conversation that you have witnessed in the office this week where people are just not listening to each other and shouting each other down. What a tremendous opportunity for Christians today to demonstrate in our workplace, in our family setting, in our church setting, what this from above speech would look like. That because Christ has already begun this work in you, it's not something you have to work up, but something you flows through you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do we let the purity and peace of Jesus permeate our words? Am I given to gentleness? Are my words sincere? If you've noticed, many people today are not open to reason. One way the earthly wisdom is expressing itself today, and this is how I like to summarize it, where people will essentially say this, if you disagree with my idea, then you hate me, and therefore I want nothing else to do with you. End of story. This is not what James is saying. James is saying we need to be open we need to be open to let words permeate our hearts. Being as gentle and sincere as we can, we still may be rejected and ignored. And just an observation in this post-COVID world, it seems like we have turned inward to ourselves. We've become the masters of our own life and saying, I will determine what I will do. And we tell others around us, whether it's our employer 
or others in authority above us. This is what I'm going to do now. This is the opposite of this wisdom from above. As a pastor, as a teacher, I've had several people over the past year write me off because I did not affirm their sinful, earthly wisdom and practices. Because the biblical message conflicted with how they wanted to live their own lives by their own agenda, by their own wisdom. Perhaps you've had your name and reputation smeared on any given social media platform only for the sake of speaking what Scripture says. You see, the salt of the gospel burns and stings self-glory. It's repulsive to earthly wisdom. The light of the gospel exposes deeds of darkness and makes the light bearer more open to spiritual and even verbal attack. The tree that is planted by streams of living water will face tempest and storm, but God preserves the righteous, and indeed, by his strength, we will flourish. You see, James is calling his hearers and to us to live to a different standard, a biblical standard, dictated by a holy God, this wisdom that comes down from above. As this word has been implanted with meekness that is able to save our souls, live it out. You see, the standards of this present age and the shifting cultural trends that tell us on one time this is okay to say, but now it's not okay, or this is now acceptable speech, or this is not acceptable speech, the word of God does not change on its standards. It is always the same for what is holy speech. Now, we might be tempted as Americans to appeal to our First Amendment rights, and those are good. I'm glad we have them, and our freedom of speech. But the gospel, the, the wisdom and the speech that comes from above is so superior to any political government-given right because redeemed speech comes only through the finished work of Jesus Christ. You see, we need to remind, remind ourselves that Jesus, who spoke nothing but the truth, was crucified for his words by earthly wisdom. He reminds us in John chapter 15, verse 18, if the world hates you and your speech, if it's true and love and, love and pure and coming from above, if the world hates you, then know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would, not, would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you and hates gospel speech. Remember the words that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. See, when we speak out of the brokenness of the work of Jesus Christ, that he has accomplished this for us, and we receive it in weakness and meekness, the power of God speaks through us. So that now, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, as we cling to Christ by faith and drink up his words, our tongues are now redeemed to speak the truth in purity, in peace, in gentleness, in mercy, producing good fruits with impartiality and sincerity. May our Heavenly Father give us the wisdom to do that today and every week until we see him in glory where our perfectly redeemed tongues will sing of his praises forever and ever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we long for the day when our poor, lisping, stammering tongues as they pass beyond the grave, give way to a nobler, sweeter song as we forever sing your power to save. Hasten that day 
In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen.